Well, good morning. It's fantastic to be with you today. I've been blessed through the years by the ministry of First Baptist Simpsonville and Upstate Church. I've had a chance to get to know some of your pastoral staff over the years, and especially all the fantastic students they send um, our way down at AU. So it's a real blessing to be uh, with you today. Uh, Steve called me smart. Um, you know, there's that whole thing about faking it till you make it. Some of us just keep on faking it, you know, all the, all the way through. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the, uh, Matthew's Gospel. We'll be in chapter 7, uh, picking up this third installment of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this fantastic sermon uh, by Jesus where he uh, raises the ethical and moral standard beyond what we can achieve, uh, but he does so for very specific purposes. Let's look at these verses, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray together. Father, it is so good this morning to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ, singing together your praise and hearing your word. And we pray in these next few moments that you would do your work with the word, that by the power of your spirit, you would open up your word to our eyes and open up our eyes to your word, that we may be changed from glory to glory on into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ as we look for the day uh, that he appears and makes all things new. Be with us together as we hear and share your word today. And together we can say, amen. It was the fall of 1996, and I was a senior in college, and it was homecoming weekend. Well, on Friday afternoon before the festivities started, some of, some of our friends and a, and a few of our, our girlfriends, we decided to go and, and take an adventure out to a place called Spurlington Tunnel. Now, it's not unlike the tunnel around here north of Wahala. What's that one called? Um, Stump House Tunnel. It's not unlike that one, except this one goes 
all the way through the mountain, about a half mile, and it's complete. So we packed snacks, and we packed flashlights, and we took off. It's just, it's just spooky enough to provide a great adventure for a day. And we got there, and we walked all the way through the tunnel, clear to the other side, and, and stood and looked over a valley where once a train trestle bridge uh, crossed. And we shared some snacks and had some fun. We thought, you know what? It's time to head back. But instead of going through the tunnel, let's go overland. We might see some new things, have a new adventure. It won't take that long. Let's just get on top of the tunnel entrance and, and go back to our cars overland. And so we did, and we started walking, and you probably know where the story's going. And we kept walking, and we kept walking, and we began to debate, have we seen that tree before? Have we crossed that ravine before? And soon, uh, the sun started to get lower in the sky, and we began to get hungry and thirsty and worried and grumpy. We began to blame one another. Whose idea was this anyway? And just when it seemed like all hope was lost and we would spend the night in the woods, we actually circled up and prayed together. And if not for what I believe was a divine moment of clarity, we might still be walking those woods in central Kentucky this very day. But what was it? The tunnel by which we came seemed restricting and in a way boring. And we wanted to be free. We didn't want those constraints. We wanted freedom. And what was the problem? We trusted ourselves too much. And this is the lesson that comes to us in the text of Scripture we're looking at uh, this morning. This is the third section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that left crowds astonished. A sermon that is both convicting and encouraging, a sermon from the words of Jesus to our, to our hearts. You'll notice that our passage today ends with this, this picture. Um, it ends with a picture of how we're to respond to everything that we've heard so far. There is a wide and open path, right? And it seems to offer freedom, but it delivers destruction. Then there is a narrow gate and a hard path that seems to offer restriction, but instead it will give you life. So the question before us today is just this, what is that narrow path? How do we find it? What does it look like to live on the narrow pathway? Well, to get an answer, we need to rewind back to chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And here, just for a, a broad overview, we see that verses 1 through 6 deal with our relationships to other people on the horizontal plane. Then verses 7 through 11 deal with our relationship to God on the vertical plane. And then verses 12 and 13 return and, and wrap it all up together into a couple of life principles by which we can orient our decisions and, and, and live our lives. Now, this is not unlike Matthew chapter 22 when Pharisees approached Jesus and they said, Good teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And how did he respond? Something like this. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. We find something of that theme here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the narrow way. Or like Mandalorian folks, this is the way, right? This is the way. So let's go back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and, and just listen to those again. Judge not 
that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here we encounter this um, humorous little parable, right? And it's, uh, it's the ludicrous nature of the picture that, that reveals how inappropriate is the behavior being described. In other words, if the idea of having a log in your eye seems a little bit silly, much less trying to remove such a thing, then it's equally silly for you to put yourself in position to pass judgment on another person. This is on purpose in Jesus' words here. The way that Jesus describes the reciprocal nature of judgment, it, it can be a little bit tricky. It might mean, and probably does ultimately mean, that the way you judge other people, God will one day judge you. But it can also mean, and certainly means in an everyday context, that the way you judge other people, they will also judge you. You've seen this play out in life, right? The standards by which you, the standards which you enforce on other people are the same standards they expect you to follow, and if you don't, they will call you out. We see this all the time, just for example, like in the political arena, right? There's one party, and they have a slim majority, and they want to pass some legislation, so they'll find some obscure parliamentary procedures by which they can pass it, and the minority party does what? That's not fair! You're all terrible people! And then a few years later, what happens? The tables turn, the other party has a slim majority, and they find some obscure parliamentary rules by which to pass some legislation, and the other party goes, That's not fair! You're all terrible people! Jesus says, and the warning is dire, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. And the kind of judgment he's talking about might be worded like this. We dare not completely judge the character of another person when we disagree over a single issue. Um, when I pastored a rural church in rural Kentucky out in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, we had a couple of older guys in the church, and they tended to poke at each other a lot. And this went on for some time, but it eventually boiled over with an incident with the county road department. The, the county paved one of, one of those country roads, and they had some asphalt left over, and it, it was so far out that it wasn't worth the time or the effort to try to return the leftover asphalt to wherever it is you get asphalt from. So uh, they took the asphalt and they paved the end of one of these old fellas' gravel driveway to create a smooth transition from his gravel drive onto the new road. Well, the other old fella just happened to be a county magistrate. And when he heard about this, he flipped his lid. And so this played out in the Sunday school class one old man accusing the other of being a freeloader on local taxpayers, and that old man accusing the first of being some governmental tyrant. Now, the problem here was not an honest conversation concerning the use of public resources. That's not the problem. 
The problem was when they took the incident to attack the other's character. The one was not a freeloader, and the other was not a tyrant. There were logs in both eyes. This sort of behavior that is described by Jesus and we see played in our lives, it is particularly destructive to Christian communities, right? It's this kind of behavior which will destroy friendships. And then once people choose sides in the friendships, it, it severs social circles. And once it begins to sever social circles, it really can destroy a Christian community or a church. And just being honest, man, over the past year, haven't we kind of seen this behavior boil over in our culture? It's just everywhere. Uh, the, our polarization over cultural issues, uh, even like responses to COVID-19 policies, and the way we just create these pictures and these caricatures of each other based on, you know, what lever they pulled in the voting booth or how they think their church responded to the pandemic, and this can be destructive. Jesus' words here are clear. Look, you're not the jury. Don't render a verdict. Leave that up to God. So what is the solution then to this uh, tendency? Jesus says, first, take the log out of your own eye. The solution is a radical sense of self-awareness. Um, the solution is to recognize your own sin. What is the best way for me to keep myself from being judgmental toward other parents? It's to remember all the times I have fouled up as a parent myself. What is the best way for me to avoid breaking out in a rage Monday morning when that guy messes up the four-way stop? to remember all the times that I have messed up the four-way stop? What is the best way to keep myself from rendering inappropriate, critical judgment on other people? It's to remember all the ways that they might fairly judge me. Recognizing our own sin really is key to the humility required not to pass judgment on other people. But notice here that the command is, listen, it's not that you should never have an opinion. It's not that you should never take a stand. No. In fact, look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, there's a picture. But the point is this. You should be discerning. You should have beliefs and you should have convictions over the most important things in life. But sometimes it's okay to be selective when and where you share those things. Let me tell you something absolutely radical. You ready? You can have a thought and not share it on Facebook. <laughs> it's possible. In fact, just showing a little bit of restraint is protective. It might keep others from attacking you unfairly. It might prevent your message from being caricatured. It might provide an appropriate buffer. Sometimes Jesus says you need to be careful where you share what you share. It helps other people not fall 
into this same trap. So walking the narrow pathway means avoiding a critical attitude by recognizing your own sin. This is the horizontal person-to-person plane. And now vertically on the person-to-God plane, walking the narrow pathway means depending on the Father. You must depend on the Father. Look at these wonderful, promising verses uh, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The pattern here is exactly the same as the previous section. There are a string of commands followed by a demonstrative illustration. The commands are to ask and seek and knock. And these are not three separate commands. These are three ways of emphasizing one command. Expect the best things from God. Expect the best things from the Father who loves you. And the illustration then is about parenting. Parents, even boneheaded ones like me, know how to give good things to their children. This past Christmas, we, uh, we purchased for our 13-year-old son a bicycle, even though we knew a bicycle was not on his list and he did not want one. Christmas morning came around, and uh, he got up, and he saw the bicycle, and he kind of feigned excitement. Oh, yay! And then he quickly settled into other stuff, right? We could not even convince him to take it out on the street for a spin. Later in the day, we'd say, son, you're going to ride this bike. Let's go. Let's go ride this bike. Well, he got on the bike, and he went down to the cul-de-sac and came back and said, seat's not comfortable. Brakes don't work right. He was not happy with this gift at all until... Christian from down the street showed up and Christian had a brand new bike. And about 30 minutes after that, Xander, who lives one, ta- one road over, he showed up. Xander had a brand new bike. By the end of the day, that bicycle was the greatest gift this child had ever received. And it has become a catalyst for the kinds of friendships a boy like him needs. Guess what he did all day yesterday, we knew what good gift to give our son, even if he did not know it. And if I know how to give my kids good gifts, how much more does our perfect Heavenly Father know how to give us what it is that we need? Now, this is not, of course, some sort of free-for-all, genie-in-a-bottle approach to prayer. I mean, God knows I'd love to have a Mustang GT. He knows that. (laughs) But he knows that's probably not what I most need. So what is it that God is most committed to? What is this gift which I need, which I may not know I need, but I need to ask and seek and knock? What is this gift? Well, let's recall a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Dustin introduced you to these impossible moral standards that Jesus just puts out there in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember chapter 5, verse 20? 
your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will not enter the kingdom of God. There is something, there is a righteousness demanded of us that is above and beyond simply keeping the rules. And then Jesus launches into this series of demonstrations of this principle, and I'll, I'll just highlight a couple of them. In verses 21 through 26 of chapter 5, Jesus says something like this, and you can glance there if you want to. Oh, you've never actually murdered someone. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Have you ever been angry enough that you wished you could? Because righteousness means you've done neither one. And just after that, he does it again. Oh, you've never committed adultery. Never had relations outside of marriage. Congratulations. Fantastic. You ever wanted to? Righteousness demands that you've done neither. And then in chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus takes this to its extreme. He goes all the way and he says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So as much as this sermon is, is encouraging and uplifting, it's also deeply convicting. What is the one thing that I don't have? That I cannot get on my own? That God must give me if I'm to enter the kingdom. It's righteousness. The thing for which I must ask and I must seek and I must knock. And here in this sermon, listen, Jesus is preaching his own life's message. Jesus is preaching his own gospel. Jesus is previewing what he would accomplish by going to the cross. He would render payment for all of our unrighteousness. And by rising from the grave, he would conquer the consequences of our unrighteousness. He is our righteousness. He can bestow his righteousness on us as a gift that we receive by faith. What is it then for which I depend on the Father? What is it I ask for and I seek for and I knock for? What is the one thing that I've got to have that I may not have and I may not even know how bad I need it, but God knows, and that's the righteousness that he can give me through Christ Jesus, his son, so that I may live in the kingdom. Come to Jesus. This is from his own words. Come to me, he says. What is this narrow pathway? is looking out for the ways that I judge others because there's a judge in heaven. And it's understanding that I actually depend on that judge in heaven because he will one day render judgment, and in him I must be righteous because of what Jesus has done for me. Not, not a righteousness that I achieve on my own, right? A righteousness that he gives me in Jesus. And then we come full circle. If walking the narrow pathway means recognizing my own sin so that I'm not judgmental, if it means depending on the Father to give me the one thing I really must have to have life in the kingdom, also means that I must simply pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
for this is the law and the prophets. It's simple. It's plain. It's sort of intuitive. Uh, You've heard it before. We call it the golden rule. Uh, Your life with God is largely reflected by the way you treat other people. It's written in the law. It's demanded by the prophets. It's from the lips of Jesus. It's affirmed by the apostles. That the greatest measure of your love for God is the way you treat other people. It's the vertical and it's the horizontal. If you go back and read the Ten Commandments in Exodus, this is how they work. Commandments 1 through 5, love God. Commandments 6 through 10, love other people. I want to show you how I think this all comes together. Um, In the sticks and hollers of western Kentucky where I grew up, uh, in the, uh, of all the kids who ran down these run-down hallways of Anton Elementary School, we always knew that there was one kid who had it hard. Um, his name was Quinston Hickerson. Uh, Quinston, Quinston lived with his mother, no father, lived with his mother and five siblings uh, in a run-down trailer in the worst corner on our end of town. And I can remember going to school with Quinston. I, I remember that he would uh, wear shoes so old that the soles would flop, and he would cut the toes out so his feet could grow. I can remember watching Quinston at lunch, and he would gather up the extra food and, and stick it away and, and sneak it home. Uh, I can remember there were days that Quinston would miss school, and, and nobody would really take notice. I remember that Quinston was the fastest kid I ever knew. And I mean, when, when field day came around in May, you wanted Quinston on your team. This is what I remember about, about Quinston. And I also remember just never knowing quite how to be his friend, right? Never knowing quite how to relate to him. One year Christmas was coming, and uh, Dad came home one night, and he had a card in his hand. He said, hey, I've got, I've got a name here on this card, and uh, there's, there's a family and they're, they're not going to have Christmas unless we do something. So our, our boys group at church, we, we adopted the project and we secured the donations and we went shopping and we wrapped the presents and all of this was supposed to be anonymous, but I was with dad the night he made the delivery. And I remember driving back through this place that just frankly, it felt like an occupied junkyard. And as a youngster, I was seeing things I did not want to see. We got there, and, and Miss Hickerson came out, and she was teary and thankful, and we gave her these big bags full of gifts. But when she came out, she left the door open. And when I looked in that door, I saw Quinston, and Quinston saw me. And I had no idea how to think, feel, or process any of this. We got back in the pickup truck, and we were pulling out of the trailer park there, and I'll never forget what dad said to me. He said, he said, son, a friend in need is your friend indeed. It wasn't long before every Wednesday night we were going down that alley to that trailer to pick up Quinston, whatever random brother or two would want to come and go to our boys group. And I can't say Quinston and I ever became close, but we certainly became friends and I always noticed during boys' group, the rest of us might be goofing off or throwing spit wads or the things that boys do. 
Quinson was dialed in. It was as though he knew that he had to hope in God because this world didn't offer him much. That went on for some time. Our uh, friendship ended after fifth grade. Uh, Quinson went to a different middle school than, than me and uh, just lost contact. Uh, but it wasn't long, maybe a year or two, when the news broke that that old trailer had caught fire and Quinson and three of his siblings were gone. His day came way too soon. And I think about this, and I remember, you know, my dad turned 73 this year, and I'm not the youngster I used to be, and we all face that day, right? That, that day's coming. But when I think about that incident in fourth grade, and I think about the day that's coming, you know what I think? I think when it comes, Quinson will be there. I think he'll be there, and I think he'll welcome us home. Listen to Jesus' words. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule, the narrow way, life in the kingdom. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter, are, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The narrow way means keeping from being judgmental by remembering my own sin. The narrow way means asking, seeking, knocking for righteousness from a Savior depending on the Father. And the narrow way means treating others as you would want to be treated. And maximally that includes the pursuit and sharing of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is the narrow way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its working in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would take what we've heard today and, and use it for your glory, that your name, your message would go out in the earth, and you'd also use it for our good that we would learn what it means to live in the righteousness that we've been given by faith in Jesus Christ. We would know that the righteousness we receive is not our own. It comes to us by a gift, but once we receive it, we are changed. And we can actually walk the narrow way in your power and by your grace. We love you today, Lord, because we know that in Jesus, you first loved us. And you gave all for us, your death on a cross, your resurrection out of a grave. In that, we have everything that we need. You indeed are the good Father who knows how to give us every good thing. And we are glad today, we rejoice today that we can trust you and depend on you.